It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In 1924, the postmaster at the University of Mississippi was slacking. He'd often close the post office and go to the woods. When he was there, he'd drink, play cards, or write poetry. He wouldn't deliver any post he felt unnecessary and any interesting magazines he kept for himself. Eventually, he gave up entirely and fired off a letter of his own. I'll be damned if I propose to be at the beck and call of every itinerant scoundrel who has two cents to invest in a postage stamp. This, sir, is my resignation. Long before the phrase entered the lexicon, William Faulkner had gone postal. These days... It's not just misanthropic writers walking out. In August, 4.3 million Americans quit their jobs, a record high. Workers are asking, what's in it for them? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Frido, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, has the balance of power tipped decisively in favour of the American worker? For decades, it's felt like momentum has been going away from workers. But now, wages are going up and workers are walking out, some to strike, some never to come back. And despite vacancies, unemployment remains stubbornly high. How could this reversal of fortunes change American politics? In this episode, we'll find out what's behind these changes, look back to another age of walkouts, and hear the outlook for the future from one of President Obama's former economic advisors. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. John, how are things with you? Well, things are ambivalent today. On the one hand, we learned that we need a new roof on our house, which is a bummer. On the other hand, I'm getting a shipment of Japanese mold in the mail, so things are looking up. <laughs> is that for pickling? And wouldn't a leaky roof make it so you no longer have to import mold and you can just yeah. locally source it? <laughs> Oh, this is very classy mold that's coming in the mail. Yeah, it's for turning into uh, koji. It's for making miso and sake and pickles. What's up with your roof? I thought the problem was in the, at the other end of the house, in the basement. It's both ends. We're, we're, we're having a brief respite in the middle of the house, but the, the basement and the roof are both conspiring against us. It's like the trash compactor scene from Star Wars, but turned the other way around. <laughs> In this week's podcast, we're going to be talking about the American economy and more specifically, the increase in power that American workers seem to be enjoying at the moment. You can see that in wage rises. You can also see it in the confidence with which many workers are either leaving their jobs, as we mentioned earlier, or indeed going on strike. And there's so many strikes at the moment that headline writers, including us, are talking about strike-tober. So 
I asked Simon Rabinovich, who covers the US economy for The Economist from Washington, to tell us a little bit about what's going on. It was a lovely autumn morning, quite blustery, and uh, I was in uh, central Pennsylvania outside of the town of Lancaster, and it's one of four big Kellogg factories that's on strike. It's the best job I ever had, and I love, I love Kellogg, mm. you know, and, and I, I hate the fact that we're out here. This one factory has about 300 workers normally. The day that I went, a couple of gates to the factory, and there was about a dozen workers in front of each gate. People want pay, they want want to share in the profits. You just see the cars driving past the picket lines and, you know, easily uh, a solid majority would honk in solidarity. And what did the folks you spoke to at Kellogg tell you about why they're striking? Uh, Well, I spoke to a number of workers. Uh, One, Kerry Williams, an instrument technician, explained why he had walked out. Because of the COVID pandemic, you know, uh, people were eating a lot more cereal because people were staying home. Mm-hmm. And we've been meeting those needs. So to meet that higher demand, Kerry said that workers there had been on almost constant overtime shifts, sometimes as long as 16 hours a day. And that the company had made huge profits, but that the workers had barely seen their pay increase. It's one thing if the company is not profitable, the workers would understand that. But we've been profitable Workers are seeing this constantly, 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 and they're tired of it. They're putting their foot down, you know. We make the business profitable. We should be sharing in the profit. Kellogg's response is that it's been giving its workers consistently uh, industry-leading pay and benefits. But for workers more broadly, there really is a sense of frustration. And Simon, this isn't just a Kellogg phenomenon. There are lots of other companies that are seeing strikes at the moment. Uh, And as you explain in your piece this week on Striketober, it's not the obvious thing, right? I think lots of people looking at this phenomenon would say, well, COVID-19 is responsible for this, like it's responsible for lots of other phenomena. But actually, there was a wave of strikes and increased wage demands before the pandemic struck as well. So this is a continuation of an existing trend in a way. Yeah, it's both a continuation and you could clearly say that the pandemic has sort of exacerbated or accelerated the initial trend. So already in 2018, 2019, America saw more than three decade highs in terms of worker stoppages. You know, over the course of the year, nearly 500,000 workers both those years uh, walked off the job. That then diminished dramatically during the pandemic for obvious reasons. But then over the course of the pandemic, with workers finding that they were overstretched and then seeing many of their companies doing so well, it just accentuated the fact that for so many, they feel like they've gotten a raw deal. Can you explain what's going on here to me? Because, I mean, before the pandemic struck, unemployment was really low, right? Below 4%. There was a very hot labour market. Since COVID struck, unemployment spiked and then has been coming down gradually. But it's still relatively high, right? 4.8%, I think, in the last Bureau of Labour Statistics release. So how come workers are feeling like they've got power on their side at the moment when unemployment is no, still presumably has a bit further to go. Can you can you explain that? You're, you're absolutely right. And there is something of a paradox here, which is that the, the unemployment rate is higher than it was before the pandemic. The actual number of workers, the size of the labor force is about 4 million lower than it was before the pandemic. But the number of job openings is at an all-time high, more than 10 million, and companies are, are struggling to find workers. So the fact that there are fewer workers working, it's not that the jobs aren't out there, it's that a lot of workers don't want to go back to work, whether they're concerned about, you know, 
health issues because of the pandemic, or whether they just feel like the jobs that are on offer are not ones that they actually want to do. And I think one of the striking things about the pandemic is that so many of the sort of low-end workers, blue-collar workers, were lauded as essential, whether they were healthcare staff or working in factories producing food. But they're looking in at their pay packets and seeing that in real terms, they've barely gone up for decades. There's this long building frustration and the sense now that with the labor market being as tight as it is, given all the openings, that they actually have a fair bit of leverage. This is a good time to strike, a good time to press their demands. So Charlotte, what do we know about why workers are quitting their jobs or staying at home or going on strike? It's a really interesting question and one that people have been asking for months now and hypothesizing about for months. So you'll remember throughout the pandemic, there's been attention to women in the workforce, for instance, and and asking whether the lack of childcare, school closures, et cetera, leads to a permanent loss of women from the workforce. And interestingly, there was a study by Jason Furman and colleagues. He was a top advisor to President Obama, um, the head of the Council of Economic Advisors. And they found that mothers of young children actually didn't account for a particularly big share of the people who had left the workforce. Similarly, so far, the decline in unemployment benefits hasn't brought a big return to the workforce. We'll be looking really closely next month for the data that comes out at the beginning of November to see whether in October that brought the decline in unemployment benefits brought more people back to the workforce. But it does seem to be perhaps older workers that are not coming back perhaps because of fear from COVID. Um, There may also be permanent shifts in attitude. There are surveys that show that people really value time with family and time at home more than they did before. So there are a lot of different forces at work, but the end result here is that you have, you seem to have what could be a lasting decline in people looking for work. Yeah. I also saw a study from JP Morgan who were trying to put some numbers on where the missing workers have gone. And the largest slice they reckoned were people who are earning more from unemployment insurance benefits than they had been in prior jobs. And then there was a good slug of just people who'd retired early. Uh, Then an increase in self-employment, which is interesting. Um, And and also they reckon part of it was a decline in temporary workers um, due to difficulties with immigration, visas, and so on. So there's, there's a lot going on here. John, what are the effects of all of this on workers? Well, I think one of the effects is striketober, as we mentioned. I mean, this is not an isolated thing at Kellogg. You have you have 1,400 workers at Kellogg who are off. You have 10,000 workers at John Deere in five states who are striking. You've got 20,000 nurses affiliated with Kaiser Permanente who are striking. We just avoided a 60,000 worker strike of film and TV production workers. The Labor Action Tracker, which Cornell's School of Industrial Relations runs, counts 178 work stoppages this year so far. I think what all of this highlights is just the extent to which we have been living through, we are living through a real-time economics experiment, right? The economy basically shut down in early 2020 because of a big exogenous shock. There's a demand shock. And sort of the effects of that are really unpredictable. It hadn't happened before. So what we're seeing is the workplace being transformed by the aftershocks of that in ways that are really sort of anomalous and and hard to forecast. Charlotte, how happy should we be about all of this? I mean, on the one hand, wages going up sounds good. Uh, On the other hand, 
it, maybe it's because I'm a child of the 80s, but industrial action on this scale always makes me slightly nervous. I worry a bit about its political effects. Yeah, I mean, there's a question about what happens after wages grow. So yes, it is absolutely a good thing that people's pay is increasing. The question is whether eventually these higher wages will be passed on in the form of higher prices, which then makes people demand higher wages. So essentially a company says, fine, I'll pay you more as a staff member, but then I'll also charge more for my product. And that then that leads to a cycle of broader inflation. And there is evidence that this is happening. So in September, hourly pay rose by 4.6% in the year to September, but consumer price inflation of 5.4% was greater than that. So an important question is whether this feeds this cycle of inflation that an increasing number of economists and politicians are worried about. It's worth pointing out that what's currently happening in the labor market is just a really big deal. If you look at the share prices of companies that are most exposed to the labor market, according to Goldman Sachs, they've underperformed the broader market so that their share prices have suffered in recent months. And so the question is whether this is sustained over the long term and what the attendant impacts are, both for workers and for the broader economy in terms of inflation and some of the more protectionist policies in favor of workers that President Trump instigated and the Biden administration, at least for now, does not seem keen to reverse. So um, together, these add up to a few different trends that could potentially have a really long running impact on the relationship between business and labor. And just to underline how long this all lasts for and whether inflation really takes off is incredibly important for politics. I mean, if you go back to the beginning of 2020, the Economist's presidential model in January had Donald Trump favored to win re-election because at that time the economy was hot, wages were going up, etc. This is just an incredibly powerful predictor of the political fortunes of the party in the White House. And of course, next year we have midterms. So if these trends last through till November, the outcome could be quite different to if they if they don't. All right, thanks both. This week, as John already mentioned, behind-the-scenes film and TV workers were set to go on strike, but they were able to come to a last-minute deal. We'll go back to another Hollywood walkout in a moment. First, the usual reminder, you really ought to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. This week, our obituary looks back on Colin Powell's life. We track the meteoric rise of TikTok among teens, and we consider Maine's lobsters. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. In 1946, two-thirds of Americans went to the cinema at least once a week. Studios were earning record profits. The studio executives were riding high. Workers were less satisfied. Mass picketing continues in the Hollywood film strike. Despite restraining orders, pickets still jam the streets and in two days more than 800 are removed to jail. In September, some behind-the-scenes artists and workers walked out. Two striking unions involving only 300 jobs have threatened the livelihood of thousands of their fellow employees. It was a jurisdictional fight between the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, which still represents people behind the camera, and the younger, more confrontational CSU. 
They were bickering over who would represent painters and decorators. Meanwhile, the police take firmer measures as the strike paralysis continues. The Screen Actors Guild, which represented those in front of the camera, voted to cross the picket line to continue production. The heartthrobs called for union leaders to adjudicate the row. We are in Chicago as representatives of the Screen Actors Guild, a member of the family of American Federation of Labor Unions. We are here to ask our AFL leaders to set up machinery for impartial arbitration of family quarrels between AFL unions. Headed by Walter Pidgeon, twice nominated for an Oscar, the Starry delegation also included Gene Kelly and a strikingly dapper but less well-known actor, recently elected SAG vice president, Ronald Reagan. But workers weren't just walking out on Sunset Boulevard. Between 1933 and 1941, union membership across America had ballooned from 3 million to more than 10 million. Labour leaders promised to hold off on strikes during the war. In 1946, though, five million workers walked out. Strikes by coal miners and railway workers brought much of industry to a halt. I believe that the time has come to adopt a comprehensive labour policy which will tend to reduce the number of stoppages of work and other acts which injure labor, capital, and the whole population. In a speech before a joint session of Congress, President Harry Truman called for new labor legislation. The whole subject of labor relations should be studied afresh. A year later, the Taft-Hartley Act was passed over President Truman's veto. It went further than he had wanted. Alongside outlawing the closed shop, and requiring 60-day notice of strike action, it limited strike justifications, including blocking strikes over unions' turf, just like the kind that had darkened the silver screen. John, all three of us really have grown up in an era where unions have been pretty weak in America, and there's something odd, it's like a weird flashback to some previous era now, reading about all the strikes going on and all the union organisation. How did unions come to be relatively weak in America, and are they making a comeback now? Well, they're weak because not many people belong to them, right? Just There's been a rise of right-to-work states and a decline in American manufacturing, which accounted for a large share of union jobs. In 1965, around one-third of all American workers belonged to a union, and today it's around 11%. I do worry, though, that unions occupy an outsized place in the public imagination and more specifically than that, an outside place in the sort of democratic imagination. Joe Biden saying he wants to be the most pro-union president in American history, that just sounds like a tagline from another era. I really worry that the view that the only way to be pro-worker is to be pro-union is distorting democratic policy and distorting more broadly American industrial policy. Charlotte, John mentioned there Joe Biden's fondness for unions, and that certainly seemed part of the kind of retro appeal of his candidacy when he ran in 2020. I have to say, I didn't take seriously at all the idea that his presidency could somehow bring about a revival of the mid-20th century power of 
the union. And so it's kind of strange seeing what's happening now. I mean, I don't think it has much to do with what Biden's done. It has more to do with COVID and supply chain disruptions and people being, companies being less willing to offshore, perhaps. Well, just to stick with what President Biden is doing for a bit, the way that Biden talks about unions, the way that he talks about his own personal history in Pennsylvania and the type of people he represents, and the way that the White House talks about unions and what unions might be able to do for the American economy, it is central to the way that Biden talks more broadly about a revival for the middle class. So in April, the White House announced a task force that was one of these interagency task forces that that the president set up that in the announcement for it said that a decline in union membership was associated with widespread and deep economic inequality, stagnant real wages, and the shrinking of America's middle class. And then he set out this set of goals that the task force should look at, saying that the National Labor Relations Act, which was passed in 1935 to encourage worker organizing, that the federal government never really implemented that policy, and that in 180 days, the task force was supposed to come up with suggestions for how policies can promote labor organizing, look at uh, different policies that might need to be changed or regulations that might need to be adjusted to promote the formation of unions. And that 180 days is coming up really fast. It's on Saturday, the 23rd of October. So there are two questions that arise from that. One is whether the policies promoted by the task force would ever be effectuated and whether they would be effective in promoting unionization. And two, if union membership were to go up, whether that actually would have the effect of reversing some of the declines that the White House talks about. So reversing trends in inequality, broadening America's middle class, et cetera. So, you know, those are some really open questions. I think that the formation of unions and the talk about unions has has much to do with political signaling to Biden's base as it has to do with anything real that might happen in the labor market. And to your point, I think that the broader changes within American business, rather than any policy strictly that comes from the White House, um, will probably have a bigger impact. One of the points that Simon's piece makes this week is that in non-union companies like Amazon, you're seeing very big wage increases as well, well above the $15 an hour minimum wage that was the rallying cry for lots of Bernie Sanders supporters and was deemed a bit too radical. You know, Amazon now is offering, I think, starting wages of $18 an hour for warehouse workers. And John, those wage increases at non-union companies are kind of a challenge to the way the left of the Democratic Party thinks about the economy, right? Which is that you get a union, you bargain, you get wages that otherwise you, you wouldn't get. I mean, that doesn't seem to be what's happening in large chunks of the economy, even though As we said, there are lots of strikes. There are lots of places where there aren't strikes and where workforces aren't unionized and where wages are rising pretty quickly. Yeah, I think it suggests that the ways to bring up workers' wages, wages for working Americans, are just more heterodox than the democratic imagination thinks, right? Earlier this year, there was a union drive at Amazon in Alabama that failed. And I think the thinking then was that it meant that Amazon workers were consigned to poor pay and poor treatment forever. But what we've seen is that the wages have risen. And so this phenomenon is something that the left, especially the left of the Democratic Party, is going to have to grapple with in thinking about how they want to craft pro-worker policies. Because right now what's happening is the Republicans are making a play for working class Americans on cultural grounds. Democrats have to make a really smart one on economic grounds. And I think merely pushing unionization isn't going to be enough. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to try and figure out how long this moment could last and what it means for electoral politics. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Betsy Stevenson is an economist at the University of Michigan and was an advisor to President Barack Obama. I spoke to her this week about how what she's called the take this job and shove it economy could play out in the long term. What we're seeing right now is, you know, record high job openings reduce the risk of quitting your job for a better job because there's a lot of jobs out there. And the safety net that was provided by the pandemic also created a little bit of a cushion so that people are not quite risking starvation if they quit their job and look for something better. And, you know, a year and a half sitting at home thinking about what better means has given people more articulate demands from their employers. So more articulate demands with a more credible threat to leave, that's now happening across the country, and that's where we get to take this job and shove it. And, you know, I think that process settles down when more people are in jobs with higher job satisfaction, greater productivity, and a reduced likelihood of quitting in the future. That all sounds pretty great. What could spoil this picture? I mean, I know you've been a bit muted in your concerns about inflation. You think that's a bit overdone. Um, Have you changed your mind at all there? I mean, do you worry about inflation spoiling the the party? I think that there are two things we need to think about, the optics of how people feel about prices. I think people are feeling bad about inflation, and a lot of that's having to do with gas and energy prices. When it comes to the other you know, price increases we're seeing, the reason why I'm kind of muted on it is the prices are going up because COVID has increased the amount of real resources required to deliver some goods and services to you. We're not getting things assembled and shipped and put on stores as efficiently as we used to. Now, I think that stuff's going to straighten itself right out. You know, I think eventually we're going to get control of COVID around the globe. Once that's under control, I think the prices come back down. Now, if that starts to get baked into financial products in a way that it you know, becomes a self-perpetuating higher inflation, that becomes very problematic. If people's inflation expectations adjust, if we start to all think we're going to have 5% inflation a year for now going forward, I start to worry about it. I'm also worried that we have fear of shortages happening right now that's artificially pushing up prices. So, you know, my my mother called me two weeks ago and said, there's going to be a turkey shortage for Thanksgiving. You need to go and buy your turkey right now. And I'm like, Mom, if I buy my turkey right now and it's every all my friends buy their turkeys right now and then somebody gets a little bit, you know, worried about Christmas, so then they buy extra turkeys for that their deep freezers, there's going to be none on the shelves, which will absolutely freak people out, which will cause a massive turkey spike. So... 
Like, that's part of our inflation problem right now. So don't go buy your turkey right now. If every consumer had a prominent macroeconomist for a daughter, the world would be a more (laughs) rational place, I think. Just to take it back to the wages question, how has what's happened to wages and employment generally changed your view of uh, that long-running argument about whether it was technology or globalisation that was exerting more downward pressure on the wages of workers at the bottom end of the labour market? Because my reading of the literature, at least pre-COVID, was that, although there wasn't agreement on this, most people thought a bit of both, but maybe more technology than globalisation. I I oversimplify enormously. But now, COVID's come along, we've had these dislocations to supply chains, we've had various other things going on. You know, lo and behold, we've got this big increase in wages at the bottom, which admittedly started pre-COVID, right, when the labour market was hot in 2018, 2019. But that would seem to argue that the people who said, oh, well, it's all technology, were, were kind of wrong. Or, or am I missing something there? It's a good question. Um, I, I definitely was one of the people who thought that technology was playing a bigger role. But I guess I, I sort of think about it a little bit differently. I think that both trade and technology has impacted workers And sometimes that is just about a transition. The problem with economists is we always emphasize the end result. We're looking at the ends and we ignore, you know, the means and how we get there. People point to like, they say, oh, you know, see, technology really improves things. Look at the Industrial Revolution. And I'm like, look, I'm glad the Industrial Revolution happened and it definitely improved living standards. But if you've ever read any Charles Dickens, there was some tough stuff that happened along the way. And so whenever we have, you know, a, a change, there are definitely losers who get caught up in the shuffle and they have to figure out where their new place is. I think we have that going on right now. And I think we have both trade and technology change that's been going on during the pandemic. You know, you emphasized sort of what was happening with global trade, but we've also had a huge surge in people's comfort level using technology, some of which is replaces people in certain jobs. But of course, it boosts the productivity of workers in other jobs. But, you know, it's it's not always clear what happens with technology. And like there is this classic example of the bank teller. You know, when I was a little kid, I remember waiting in line for my mom to deposit money with a person. I mean, that sounds absurd right now, right? We go all go to an ATM and everyone thought all of those bank tellers were going to get laid off and they didn't. They actually went on to do more productive work and we actually ended up with more bank tellers at higher wages. So, you know, Trade and technology can help people be more productive and earn higher wages, or it can leave them stranded without any work and trying to figure out what they want to do. And the goal of government should be to help us get the best out of trade and technology and make sure that we're helping people who are bearing the brunt of the costs. Charlotte, Joe Biden's approval rating numbers are looking pretty bad at the moment. There's been a steady slide really since his inauguration and a notable downward tick around the withdrawal from Kabul, which you talked about on a podcast earlier this year. Now, 
one thing that could potentially help Democrats next year would be increased wages at the bottom, workers feeling stronger, people changing jobs, general mood of optimism. But clearly, the potential for a wage price spiral that you talked about at the beginning of the podcast and that Betsy Stevenson recognised there also has the ability to act as a spoiler for Democrats going into next year. Yes, that's right. I think it's a question of how real people feel their income gains to be if it's all going straight out the door because they're paying more at the gas pump or if they need to spend more to buy their groceries, et cetera, then I think people will not be uh, as content with with the changes under Biden. On energy prices, which have been rising, you know, President Trump was keenly, keenly aware of the price of oil, and he unconventionally would take to Twitter to try to influence OPEC, the oil cartel, at key moments during his presidency. So I think it's really important to keep an eye on inflation more broadly, but also specifically energy prices for Biden, where he's in a tough spot, frankly, of wanting to promote a broader climate agenda while being aware that he doesn't want petrol prices, gas prices to get too high. Yeah, it's not just energy, though, right? It's energy and property and used cars and food prices. I mean, what I wonder, Charlotte, is to what extent are these all products of the pandemic? And to what extent do they represent sort of longer running trends that the pandemic may be intensified? Well, one of the fascinating things is the way in which different trends are coinciding at the moment that are actually kind of disparate. But together, all of these things do push prices up. And the question in my mind, or a really important question is where this leads us in terms of a longer-term economic impact. So when you have rising wages, as we've discussed, does that raise prices, that furthers inflation, the shortages of goods that we're seeing, does that lead to reshoring that actually might drive prices up further? Biden is trying to pursue a pretty active industrial policy for America. Will he be able to achieve that? i.e., will he be able to promote American supply chains versus purely globalized ones? That's a policy on which, by the way, he has support from some Republicans like Marco Rubio and others. So together, do these trends add up to something that is furthering inflation in the long term, but also leading to higher wages? Those are some of the most interesting questions, I think, as you see these big, big changes happening within the labor market and within global supply chains. John, if the three of us could answer this question accurately and with great foresight, we'd all be bond traders. But I'm going to ask you to stick your neck out anyway. Do you think that these positive trends in the economy, particularly in wages at the bottom end, are going to continue into November next year and give the Democrats a boost in the midterms? Or are you more worried about inflation? I mean, how do you see all of this playing out politically? Well, I think those are two separate questions, right? Number one, do I see the trend in wage increases continuing? I suppose yes, because I don't quite see what would stop or reverse it. But the other question is, does this redound to Democrats' advantage? I think that's a lot harder to foresee if, as Charlotte suggested earlier, that the increase in wages gets passed on to consumers in the form of higher prices, which leads to an inflationary cycle. I think that's really worrying. I think Democrats will have a hard time if that's the case, if wages are going up, but we're also paying more for everything. If shortages continue and people still can't buy used cars, I think that could that could really harm Democrats. So it's not just a question of wages disaggregated from everything else. It's a question of what wages do to the rest of the economy and how the economy sort of coheres itself around higher wages. There is a more optimistic way to look at this, right, which is that 
there's an increase in productivity. So you have higher wages that leads to higher productivity, and that might be supported by efforts to boost worker training, um, enhance innovation, and so forth. So you heard Betsy Stevenson talking about technology and the way that that might boost productivity among some types of workers, even as it might have a more negative impact on others. I think that some of the more interesting policy discussions are about how you continue to support higher productivity across the economy so that you have higher wages and a higher productivity and it's a win-win and the output per employed person goes up. So we'll see if you have higher productivity and higher wages and that becomes a win-win. And I suppose one potentially negative thing amid all the good news is that if you take the economist's view of the world and are in favour of free trade, it's possible to spin a story about what's happening at the moment with the wage increases that says, hey, you know, protectionism works. Trade has slowed down. We've got these interruptions to supply chains, queues of container ships outside the port in Los Angeles and elsewhere. And lo and behold, workers' wages have gone up. So we told you all along, globalization, trade, bad for workers. You can see how that narrative might, might take hold. Yeah, I would expect Republicans to make that argument next year and in 2024. Republicans being formally the party of free trade, but not so much any longer. Yes, it's hard to see politically how... It- any party comes to embrace free trade, at least in the short term. Well, that's a gloomier note to end on than I'd hoped for in a podcast that's mainly been about good news in the labour market. So let's go to the quiz and see if we can lighten things up a bit. President Truman called the Taft-Hartley Act a dangerous intrusion on free speech, and he tried to veto it. The Economist wrote at the time that the most effective argument for the act has been that however unfortunate or distasteful some of its provisions might be, it provided the only way to deal with strikes in basic industries. While Republicans were lining up votes to override the veto, two freshman congressmen travelled to McKeesport, a steel town in western Pennsylvania, to debate the bill in front of union bosses and businessmen. The pair would debate again in front of millions. But on the train back to Washington, they shared a sleeper car. Who were they? Nixon and Kennedy? The idea of Nixon and Kennedy sharing a sleeper car is really great. I'm picturing a kind of North by Northwest, Eva Marie St. Cary Grant situation. It's adorable, isn't it? Yeah, I feel like you could spin a decent Netflix series out of that. It was indeed Richard Nixon and JFK. They had struck up a friendship while serving together on the House Education and Labour Committee. Question number two. There is, of course, a long and illustrious history of presidential trains. In October 1944, Franklin D. Roosevelt made a campaign stop in Manhattan. According to Secret Service documents, he left the city by train via Track 61, a private platform connected to Grand Central Station. It lies under which glitzy New York hotel, the world's tallest at the time, and the location for dozens of movies? Waldorf Astoria. She's right. Charlotte, you got in there straight away. It was indeed the Waldorf Astoria. Originally built as a service platform, Track 61 was also the site of a 1948 fashion show by Filene's and Andy Warhol threw a party there in 1965. That's a point piece, I think. So congratulations are in order for both of you. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thanks also to our producers, Stevie Hertz, John Shields and Nicola Rofast, and to our researchers, Erica Shin, Milton Vargas and Elizabeth Peet. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.